0: Welcome to the Liberty Cafe, where oppression is on the menu. This is episode 14 of the Liberty Cafe, and I'm very glad you're with me today. Today, my guest is Sam Bridgman. We have a lively discussion list at the church that Sam and I both attend. And we talk about all kinds of different topics. Sometimes it's just somebody needs to borrow a chainsaw or something like that. But other times it gets into more theological discussions about things. And, And one of the things we've been talking about lately, not surprisingly, is all the problems with racial issues in the country today. The uh, killings by police and the subsequent riots have brought that to the forefront for all of America, and, and our church community is uh, not immune to that. So I've, I've known Sam a little bit over the years, but we've we've had more conversations over our, our men's list, and, and I thought he would be a really interesting guest to have on the Liberty Cafe today. So Sam is retired now. He spent 34 years with New York Life as an as an agent, a recruiter, and about almost 30 of those years as an agent training and management development. Uh, in his retirement, he's uh, now spending his time helping develop grandchildren basketball players. So please uh, join me in welcoming uh, Sam Bridgman to the Liberty Cafe. Glad to have you here, Sam.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: Uh, tell me a little bit about this new career you have of developing grandchildren basketball players.
1: Well, it's... it's um... It's actually not real new. I've been involved with, because basketball is how I was able to leave my own neighborhood and state and get a college education. And as I like to say, basketball has paid a lot of bills in my family. Uh, When you consider my brother played 12 years in the NBA, I have a cousin that played in the NBA, another cousin that played overseas, and then Jackie, who I taught to play when she was six years old. She went to college on a basketball scholarship and plays in Finland professionally. And so we were really in the third or fourth generation of family members in basketball, fifth generation in terms of athletes, because my dad was an athlete and played professional for what he, at that time, he played in the Negro Leagues, which was the best you could do for as a professional baseball player. And he actually was a catcher and caught for Satchel Paige. And, That's great. Um, yeah. So a lot of sports history, sports, as I said, and, and particularly basketball, has paid a lot of bills.
0: Well, that's really great. You've talked a little bit already about your experiences as, as a young man and, and growing up kind of things. And, and you talked some about that recently on, on our men's list, about your experience when it came comes to this, this debate that's going on between African-Americans being harassed or shot and killed. By police, and then just the black on black crime. Could you talk a little bit of that about that, particularly in the context of your growing up?
1: Yes, I don't have any problem with that at all. And as I said, I grew up. Well, I didn't say where I grew. I grew up in East Chicago, Indiana, where uh, which is right next to Gary, Indiana. A lot of people don't know where east Chicago is, and you say East isn't East in the Lake. Yeah, it wouldn't be if it would <laughs> East of Chicago, Illinois. We're actually south in Indiana. And just a small city away between us and the south side of Chicago, and so growing up, um, there was a lot of issues with south side of Chicago gangs who would recruit all the way, not just in Chicago, but come into Indiana through East Chicago where I lived, Gary, and go all the way up north on to Michigan City as far north as that. They would have members so being aware of gang and gang issues um, and even then they weren't as violent as they are today but they were still violent and uh, that to me growing up was more of a concern i got stopped by the police but the police wasn't seen as being the villain that it is today by any stretch of imagination and as i shared with the men's uh, email list growing up i was more concerned about being in the wrong place at the wrong time, dealing with gangs and having to navigate where they are. And if we dated a girl outside of our city, uh, having to figure out how to get in and get out without drawing any attention to ourselves. And that was a a lot greater threat. And as I mentioned, I've known uh, growing up at least two people that were killed, not by the police, but gang related killings as well as one or two people I know that was shot. They weren't killed, fortunately. And so from my background, and as I told people before, I played basketball not only because I liked the game, and I saw it as a way to possibly get a scholarship to go to college, because education was uh, greatly reinforced by my parents. But at that time, if if I was a basketball player, what gang members were actually in East Chicago, the town where I grew up. They protected the basketball players. And so I was immune from the gang draft, so to speak. And so that was another major reason to be an athlete and a basketball player growing up.
0: You mentioned your family and the the focus on education. What role did that play in in shaping your understanding of how people of different ethnic backgrounds and race relate together.
1: It's interesting because the education issue, um, my parents never brought up racial issues, which is kind of interesting when I look back, but education issues were were huge. And so I'll share a couple of uh, things that took place when I was a child. First of all, uh, the first time I even realized that there was a major problem, because East Chicago, surprisingly, was a very diverse community, and especially where I lived in the harbor, which was closest to the lake. In that time, the city was kind of divided by railroad tracks, which who actually still is. And if you lived on the side that I lived on, the people kind of looked down your nose at the people that lived where I lived. But where I lived was very diverse. When I say diverse not just black and white in that traditional sense, uh, and Hispanic, but Hispanic, Puerto Rican, Greek, Italian, um, Serbian, Croatian. And so like the couple of players I played with their last names were like Tatalovic, uh, Tribunovic, uh, those types of names. So growing up there and growing up together and playing on teams together, uh, and I was on a little league team and I was 11 years old and our little league team played in the suburb in the all-star game. All-star team did. And that was the first time that I ran into uh, what could be taken as uh, being cheated because by the umpires. And my parents never referred to it as anything racial, even though the other team was all white and my team was mixed. Dramatically. And I know it was so bad at one point that our picture's crying. And my parents and all the parents who came, they were totally silent in their stands. And I kept saying, Why don't they say something? I mean, this is so bad. And so we lose the game. And the next day, my dad is at the dining table eating breakfast before going to to work. And I'm complaining. And he says to me, You just have to be better. And kept eating. There was no racial undertone or anything like that. And so that kind of set the tone, not only for sports, but for everything else that you just have to be the best. And the second thing my dad did is prior to that, when I was 10 years old and my brother junior was nine, he got us up at 5 to 5.30 in the morning because he had three part-time jobs to go along with his full-time job, and he made us go help him with his part-time jobs and part-time job was the janitorial job, cleaning a a tavern, washing windows at a uh, men's clothing store and taking care of an office building, a small little office building. And constantly he would tell us that if you don't get a good education, this is what you're going to be doing. And he was very disciplined because I He taught us what to do and then he would come behind us and he said, that's not good enough. Do it again. And um, so he instilled a strong work ethic, but not only a strong work ethic, but when you do work for someone, it it doesn't matter who it is because none of the people that we work for were black. He wanted us to do the very best that we could do. And so that was keeping in line with what we learned from my mom and actually my, my grandparents, in terms of our faith, and because we were in church every Sunday with my dad and mom, and my mom's position was you treat everybody right. That was her version of the golden rule, by the way. You treat everybody right mm-hmm. until they show otherwise, and she made no differentiation. So we did neither, and we weren't taught to do that. And so those things greatly influenced um, me and my siblings. I'm the oldest of four where uh, we all decided because of what was going on and how our parents were greatly involved in what we were doing that it kept us on the straight and narrow. And my dad's attitude was also that I keep you too busy to get in trouble. <laughs> and his famous line was, if you ever get in trouble, and he said, if you ever get arrested." you better pray I don't come and get you. <laughs> and I, that, that voice came back to me one time when I was in the wrong place at the wrong time, just with some other kids, and didn't do anything wrong, but uh, this was right after Martin Luther King was assassinated, and one of the guys from the basketball team started breaking out windows and yelling, I don't want to take this anymore, and all this kind of stuff, so-called protest. And the police came, And it was a good thing I was an athlete because there was no way I was going to get arrested. I was more afraid of my dad coming to get me than the police (laughs) arrested me.
0: Well, that that kind of brings up two things for me. And one, of course, is that you had a father at home, which hasn't been the case for a lot of uh, black young men over over the years, particularly more recent years. Before we get to that, I'd like to talk a little bit about uh, where you grew up compared to growing up in the South. I mean, not, not that things were all bad in the South, but there tended to be more violence back in the 50s and 60s as things were erupting down there in the South. And it did not sound like you ever had to face those kinds of things. How do you think that maybe changed the perspective or shaped the perspective of, of, of uh, blacks who grew up in the South? I think of two
1: things. I think um, that I was blessed to be in a diverse community. And I think many of the uh, people during that same time period that I grew up that were in uh, more segregated communities as there was in the South, their perspective to me is a lot more narrow. And because of maybe difficulties or hearing about difficulties and things like that, shape their expectations. And the closest I came, I got elected to represent my high school at a Northern Indiana interracial conference that they were doing. And afterwards, we went with a Jewish couple home, a couple of us students. And I'm in the back seat behind the driver and the dad stops to uh, get some chips and drinks at 7-Eleven. And this car pulls up next to me. And uh, I don't know where we are. I know we're in a a white suburb somewhere in in Indiana. And the guy in the car looks over at me and I look at him and if looks could kill, I'm dead. And the dad comes running out of the 7-Eleven and he says, we got to get you out of here. And I I don't know what's going on. And all of a sudden, I'm in a a, really a panic between what he just said and the look that this guy gave me. And he said, well, this guy is the local uh, Ku Klux Klan leader, Grand Wizard or whatever, the local guy. And so in a panic, he gets us out of there. And so if you had that kind of experience in the South, I think it might color how you see the world. And I saw that difference. When I was a manager prior to my career with New York Life, I was a manager trainee out of college for Sears Roebuck and Company. And I was a customer service manager at a Sears store. And there was a gentleman who was the assistant store manager from Texas. And he had the Southern kind of drawl. I thought he was a good guy. And we had trainees at the time. And we had a Black trainee. And the trainee came to me. Well, first, the assistant store manager came to me saying that, I'm trying to help this guy, but everything I seem to say or do just doesn't happen. It just seems to make things work. I don't know what I'm doing wrong, you know, uh, but I just, I want to see this guy succeed. You know, can you help me? And at that particular point in time, I had no idea what was going on. And ironically, about 15 minutes after this assistant store manager left, the trainee came in to see me and he sits down and he says, I think this guy's out to get me, (laughs) What do you base that on? Uh, Because he's always, you know, asking me about stuff, trying to help me do things. I think he wants to get rid of me. And uh, and that's when it struck me there. And then I was married to a different lady at that time than I am today. I'm happy to be married 36 years now to Yvonne. But she was black and she was a psychology major. And I talked to her about the issue where when I got tested to become a manager at, at Sears, I didn't, the, the psychology guy made a special trip out of Dallas up to Denver where I was to visit with. And I said, well, was there something unusual about my exam that you made this special trip? He said, well, yeah, I really was looking forward to talking to you because you didn't exhibit any paranoia, which was typical of most black trainees. And I said, well, what are you talking about? And he said, a, a, a paranoia may be too strong a word, but just a, a sense of distrust. And you never exhibited that. And so I kind of shared the story with my, how my mom taught me to look at people, and he just was fascinated by that. And my ex-wife thought that was the most worst thing that could ever happen. How can I be that stupid and that trusting? And I thought, well, it has, has done well for me in terms of I have all kinds of friends that I probably wouldn't have if I had that paranoia type of attitude. And so I think just talking to that young gentleman back then and, and talking to other people and even recently because of some posts that I made on Facebook, that I see that same type of distrust or paranoia, however you want to call it, where if. Every white person is the boogeyman, and I just find that so disheartening sometimes as well as frustrating in dealing with people because then you have prejudged the person long before you had any real interaction with them, and you may have missed an opportunity to have a great friend and somebody, especially from a career standpoint, that can help you in your career and move you forward and to become even more successful. But you have shut the door because of this preconceived mindset that you have.
0: I'd like to get back a little bit to the to the father issue. Have you read mm-hmm. Thomas Sowell's book, Black Rednecks and White Liberals?
1: No, but I do like Thomas Sowell yeah, a lot.
0: Me, me too. I think he just turned what, 90, if I'm if I'm not yeah. mistaken. So I've read this book maybe 3 years ago and it fascinated me because it put the strife we often see in cultures not just American cultures on more of a cultural basis than a r- racial mm-hmm. basis. And in particular, he gets the title for the book Black Rednecks from the culture that was imported into America from you know, like northern England and and Scotland where the people were rough, and they were not necessarily the the hard-working Protestants that we think of in in other parts of of England. And they came and settled in in Appalachia, in the South, and and those types of things. And they developed this Southern culture, which was much more laid back than it was in the North, Uh, even lazy uh, to a lot of extent. There was less... Church going, there was more violence than than you had in in lots of parts of the north. Those types of things, and and he says so that's the redneck culture. It didn't develop here in America. It actually came over from England and Scotland, and then blacks were brought into that situation through slavery, and they Mm -hmm. grew up in that culture. And but then he points out how you know eventually all these other groups have sort of gotten out of that culture, they've, they've moved past it. But he said, if you look at the, the state of blacks, in many situations, in some places, you find that still being the case, not everywhere, of course, but and he's particularly focused on the welfare state, and, and how the welfare state has helped keep blacks, other people too, but in, in this particular focus, blacks in, in a situation where they're not working, where there's not fathers in the homes and those types of things. And so I don't think he puts it quite this way, but uh, he talks about that if there's a problem with racism in our country, it's it's the the white liberals who have kept many blacks in a position where it's very challenging and difficult to to succeed. And that's why we see a lot of the problems we see today. With blacks and you know low and high unemployment rates and and poverty and you know again fathers not in home and those kind of things it he says that's more the case than it is with uh, white racism any any thoughts on that
1: yeah a lot uh, let's see if I can coalesce them into something coherent here but the I, I agree my concern would be that uh, too often. The missing factor, I think, is that even when the culture, even because I'm I'm old, almost old enough to remember a, a little bit before the civil rights movement, and the social things that held us together, the social mores that said this behavior is not acceptable, um, uh, that was undermined the impact of the church in terms of being an influence was undermined by, I think, the. it's one of those consequences that you weren't counting on or wasn't expecting in terms of the civil rights movement. And so as we moved and then the uh, Lyndon being Baines Johnson, LBJ's new deal or new society or great society that he was trying to put together, the welfare created and supported that laziness mentality. And to me, that was one of the more detrimental things that happened. And because there used to be businesses, at least some small businesses in the black community, and a lot of those businesses that employ blacks that begin to instill a different kind of work ethic than the one that you just described that came out of the Southern culture, that got eliminated. So you have nothing really helping to combat that. And then you turn around and create a welfare state that says dads can't be around or men can't be in your life. So it just promoted the things to me that exacerbated the problems that were already there or already growing, just made them a lot worse. And so I think it's critical that dads be in the home, that they represent what they're supposed to represent, and even more so if they can be taught to be godly dads and what that truly means. And right now, when you add on top of everything that the government did with the marriage penalty tax, the welfare state uh, rules and regulations, and human nature that wants to take the path of least resistance. So if I can get money and not work, then I'll stay on welfare. And and when you put all that together and then you throw on top of that, the music culture that changed and glorifies uh, bad behavior and whether it's being a so-called gangster or whatever, uh, and the drug culture, it, it was all a formula for disaster, and it has been. And if you follow the money, there's people making money, I think, on the backs of those people in welfare and all the things that come out of that, higher crime rates, higher incarceration rates, higher rates of out-of-wedlock uh, kids, and murder, um, because there must be money, At least I believe that there's money being made uh, because our leaders who've been in there for years don't seem to want to address the root of the problem. The police, to me, and the shootings, as bad as they are, they are a symptom. The root of the problem starts with the breakdown of the home, and nobody's really wanting to address that, the breakdown of values. And from a Christian perspective, not seeing the other person as being made in the image of Christ or being, as even our Constitution is saying, all men created equal. Even if we could get to that, we would be a lot better off than we are today. But when we have all these pressures going against that type of thought process, is it any wonder we have all the problems
0: that we have? Uh, no, 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 it's not. While white people may not have a monopoly on racism i mean truly there 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 are white racists in america i don't think anybody can deny that and and you've talked a little bit about how you feel like the focus of the church responding to these injustices uh, basically by apologizing and repenting and commenting their comments on the rise today that make people feel good but they kind of miss the real need and the action that the church should be taking Could you tell us a little bit your thoughts about how the evangelical church is missing the mark and what they should be doing better?
1: To me, it's kind of almost, if it wasn't so sad, it'd be laughable. The church needs to do what the church is called to do, and that is share the gospel. And that is get involved and go out and make disciples. And to do that, we have to get out of our comfort zone. And so making disciples of people that are just like us is fine. But the call is to go out into the world. And sometimes we're more likely to want to send a missionary to another country than we are to another neighborhood in our own town. And to me, that's where it should be. Apologizing does not do a lick of good, as far as I'm concerned. And if you really want to show the love of Christ, You do that by talking to people, finding out and meeting them where they are, dealing with their physical needs, and then their spiritual needs. And just like I said, you can, if a person needs food, you just don't tell them, you know, go away and feel warm But they need food and clothing. You kind of help with that, but you do it in such a way where you're able to go out and share the gospel. And. That's what the church should be doing. It should be looking at opportunities right around where the church happens to be, as well as close to where the church is. And so maybe the church is not near a black neighborhood. doesn't have to be. It can partner, I believe, with ministers at a black church. Hopefully that their theology is not so far askew that we can't come together on that issue. And then find out what can we do? to help you reach your people, to make a difference in the lives of the community. It's that type of action and not sitting around and saying, well, we're sorry for what our, our ancestors did. And even if it's just previous church leadership in the denomination we're in right now, it doesn't matter what they did. And we shouldn't be held accountable for what somebody did 20 years, 30 years, or 200 years ago. The question should be, what are we going to do now to move towards the future that Christ has called us to do, which is to go out into the world and make disciples. And so the church already knows what it should be doing because we've read it. It just needs to do it.
0: Uh, I couldn't agree with that more. As you know, I've got a background in public policy and I've spent a lot of time coming up with different ideas for how government can reform what it's doing to improve things, but but it's the same thing. In that area the, is what you're talking about here that all those ideas are fine about how we can end poverty or increase prosperity or deal with racial strife those kind of things but none of that is ultimately going to make a difference unless the the church is doing its work and of course the Holy Spirit will do its work but it, it sure would be nice if the church all of us, got on board and and worked along with it?
1: Absolutely, because ultimately, it is a heart issue. And the heart of man, whether in the Black community, white community, green, yellow, whatever, it's the heart of man. And all the government policies, all the so-called education and retraining, whether you're talking about police or any other institution, is not going to work if the heart stays the same. And the only people with the answer for that is the church.
0: Amen. Well, thank you very much, Sam, for being with me today on the Liberty Cafe. Pleasure. And thank you to all the listeners for joining us as well.